Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. On the show this week, Exxon's deal with Rosneft puts an end to BP hopes for drilling in the Arctic. The distinguishing thing about the Exxon Rosneft deal that I think differentiates it from the BP Rosneft deal is that the the Exxon deal is much less grandiose, and I think it'll be much easier to deliver politically for Russia. Spain's largest oil producer, Repsol, is kept in check by two large shareholders. This is primarily about an indebted Spanish construction company that owns a 20% stake in Repsol, trying to squeeze more money out of the oil company in the form of higher dividends to finance the debt that it used to buy the stake in Repsol. And shale gas. Is it the solution for a low-carbon future in the UK? At a time when North Sea gas production is clearly on a downward path and where we are importing greater quantities of gas every year, finding a, a large domestic resource additional to what we have at the moment would clearly be useful. The US Department of Energy has a much bigger estimate. They think the figure is 560 billion cubic metres. Let's start the show with ExxonMobil and a deal with Rosneft to develop oil and gas reserves in the Russian Arctic. The deal, which will see the two companies invest $3.2 billion in one of the last unconquered drilling frontiers, puts former Rosneft partner BP firmly out of the picture. Joining me in the studio is Lex writer Vincent Boland. Now, Vincent, who's the big winner from this deal? I think Exxon is probably the big winner from the sort of medium-term perspective. It gets access to an awful lot of reserves in the Arctic, and there are lots of reserves potentially in the Arctic. They're very hard to get and it's going to be years before anybody gets them. But Exxon has the money and the technical expertise to do that. And that's what Rosneft was looking for. Exxon has negotiated a deal with Rosneft that looks very good from a BP perspective. It's giving away very little, and I think getting a lot, ultimately. Because one of the things Exxon has promised Rosneft is a stake in production and fields in the Gulf of Mexico. It's not going to make much of a difference to Exxon. You know, they have vast interests in the Gulf of Mexico anyway, and they can certainly, I think, afford to bring a partner like Rosneft in, particularly since this is a strategic partnership that the two of them are, are creating. I mean, it's not just a, related to the Arctic, but this is a wider kind of thing that I think there's going to be a lot of technological transfer between Exxon and Rosneft under, under this agreement. And then we're talking very long term, aren't we? And we're not going to see any sort of real production coming out of the Arctic till, what, 2020 or so at least? I would have thought so at least. I mean, these reserves are, you know, they're hard to get to. The mechanics of drilling through ice and and frozen waters and deep down into the the bed of of the Arctic I think are probably enormous. And obviously getting it from hydrocarbons onto the market is a very expensive process. It's going to be vast capital expenditure required from both Exxon and Rosneft. And what about the the political risk associated with this? I mean, Exxon has some history in Russia. Are they biting off more than they can chew, or do we even know at this stage? I think every Western oil company has an unhappy experience or two in Russia. That seems to be par for the course. I think that you know there was an impressive line-out of Russian political figures at the announcement in Sochi on Tuesday. So if that doesn't give some kind of comfort to Exxon, then I don't know what could. The distinguishing thing about the Exxon-Rosneft deal that I think differentiates it from the BP Rosneft deal is that the, the Exxon deal is much less grandiose 
And I think it'll be much easier to deliver politically for Russia. In the sense that there's no share swap between the two companies? There's no share swap. There isn't a sort of promise of undying affection for the rest of their lives between the two companies. It's very much a commercial relationship. I think part of the problem with the BP Rosneft alliance back in January was that it kind of promised a great deal more than it could ever deliver. It was presented in a very highfalutin fashion, by, particularly by Bob Dudley. It was completely oversold by BP. This is much more business relationship. I mean, Rex Tillerson, the CEO of Exxon, and his counterpart at Rosneft, you know, you couldn't ask for two more hard-headed, I think, oil guys than those two. I guess also for, for Rosneft, it's a bit of a sort of face-saving deal in the sense that having seen the collapse of the BP alliance, they did need an alliance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Rosneft's entire value and its future depends on commercialising the Arctic uh, reserves and confirming that they're there and bringing them in onto the market. It obviously thought it had the partner in BP, but that, for a whole variety of reasons, not really to do with Rosneft. The whole thing fell apart. It needed to fill that vacuum very quickly. I think the fact that it has done so means that it has actually put the disappointment behind it now. So I think that from here on in, Rosneft can be regarded as the Russian company in the Arctic region. And it's also, I think, more than any other Russian oil company, it's much more internationally minded and willing and ready to take on international experience than, than the others. And just a final question on this point, where does this all leave BP? It's not a shock. I think it's an embarrassment, really. I mean, the fact that Exxon was able to come in so quickly and that Rosneft was able to wrap up this deal so quickly, I think, again, just points to the flaws in the original BP-Rosneft alliance, which was too visionary and not commercial enough, I think. And the share swap, of course, was a thing that was just a red rag to BP shareholders who had already been sitting on colossal loss of value from the Macondo incident. So the ExxonMobil-Rosneft alliance was announced on the same day that BP said it had closed its deal in India. But that didn't make any of the newspapers. You know, It's not that BP has been standing still. It's just that it, the, the, the setbacks it suffers are very high profile and it doesn't really seem to have the, the, the sort of finesse to handle them in the way that sort of Exxon has been able to pull off this Rosneft deal. It's a bit like that line that the BP might get there first, but Exxon does it better. Yes. Thank you. Let's move on to Repsol, our second topic for today. Two large shareholders, the Mexican state-owned oil company Pemex and the Spanish construction company Sacur, have made an alliance joining forces to give them a combined 30% share in the company. Now, Vincent, what's this all about? This is primarily about an indebted Spanish construction company that owns a 20% stake in Repsol trying to squeeze more money out of the oil company in the form of higher dividends to finance the debt that it used to buy the stake in Repsol. Shouldn't they be reducing their stake? Of course they should. And I think, you know, as several people said to me yesterday, if if Sakir wants to control Repsol, why don't they launch a takeover bid? The fact of the matter is that Sakir is worth less than a tenth of Repsol. And it's true as the... Uh, management of Sakir have argued that the value of its Repsol stake is not reflected in its own valuation. That's certainly true. But that is all to do with Sakir and nothing to do with Repsol. So I think that this is very much a situation that promises, I think, a bit of instability around Repsol for some time, particularly in the boardroom, because they want to separate the jobs of chairman and CEO at Repsol, which I think is not going to be an easy thing to achieve. Do we know any, anything behind the reasons of Pemex, the Mexican company, for increasing its stake? I was talking on Tuesday with a couple of people close to Pemex, and the argument there is that Pemex believes that it has never really been able to leverage its 5% stake in Repsol, which it's had for a good while, and it's been a friendly investor in Repsol for a good while. What Pemex needs is capital and technological expertise. And I think it thinks that if it can get another board seat at uh, Repsol, it already has one. If it can get maybe a second board seat, it might be able to attract more of Repsol's attention and Repsol might be able to see more value in a stronger commercial and technological relationship with with Pemex than it has already. Does the Spanish government have a say in any of this at all? I think the Spanish government is intimately 
interested in what happens to Repsol. It is this flagship Spanish corporation in some ways. It has already said that it wants Repsol to remain a Spanish, a visibly Spanish company based in Spain, run by Spaniards and independent of a major owner. I think that what has happened now is that Sakir and Pemex between them have probably backed Repsol into a corner in that given that they have 30% of it, neither of those two can afford to buy it. And probably because they own a 30% stake, nobody else is going to make any kind of takeover offer for Repsol either because satisfying those two shareholders probably would be very difficult. So I think that Repsol is a bit in limbo right now and that this development means that it's just going to stay there for a little longer. We'll keep watching with that one. Thank you very much, Vincent. And to our final topic for today, shale gas. Can it be part of the UK's transition to a low-carbon future and can it provide cheap, affordable gas? Now, joining me in the studio is FT Energy correspondent David Blair. David, you've just come back from Preston, uh, where a company, Quadrilla Resources, is drilling for shale gas. What did they say? Is this a game-changer for the UK? It could be significant. It's almost certainly not a game-changer. But Quadrilla are drilling in a cabbage field between Preston and Blackpool. And on September the 21st, they will disclose their estimate for the total amount of shale gas that they believe are within their license area, which covers 437 square miles of cabbage fields and farmers' fields and uh, various other fields in Lancashire. Now, they've actually had to stop hydraulic fracturing recently because of an earthquake. Two earthquakes, in fact, took place, one in April, one in May, one measuring 1.5 on the Richter scale, the other measuring 2.25 on the Richter scale. Earthquakes of that kind of size occur quite commonly, even here in England. About 20 earthquakes of that nature take place in Britain every year. And there's no evidence that it was linked to fracturing rock at all. However, an investigation is underway to establish whether or not there was a link. And in the meantime, Quadrilla Resources, the company concerned, have suspended their fracking operations as a precaution against causing any further devastation to Blackpool. What about the environmental concerns surrounding fracking? There are significant environmental concerns. The most important is the drilling that takes place requires going through the water table and it raises the possibility of possible contamination of water aquifers, underground deposit of water. Now, precautions can be taken against this. It's by no means inevitable that that any problems would arise at all. But the concerns have been sufficiently serious for the French Parliament, for example, to vote to ban fracking. So because it's all quite new, these are all areas that have yet to be proven and these concerns have yet to be fully answered or addressed. There's quite a lot of water used in the process. It requires between 3 and 4 million gallons to frack a single shale well, which sounds like an awful lot, but to place it in context, your average golf course uses about a third of a million gallons of water every day. So by comparison with other things that use water, it's perhaps not as uh, as extravagant as it might sound. So I don't get the impression that that's an enormous problem regarding Quadrilla's operations. The issue of how to reassure the local community that there's no possibility of contamination of groundwater is perhaps the most important one. But just put the UK potential into context. I mean, the US obviously has a lot of shale gas deposits and has become almost gas independent because of them. What do people think about the UK in relation to the rest of Europe? Obviously, there's a lot of fracking going on in Poland and the Ukraine. 
There are quite big reserves here. The British Geological Survey estimate that Britain has 150 billion cubic metres of shale gas resources. To place that in context, our annual consumption of natural gas is about 100 billion cubic metres. So that quantity would last us for a year and a half. The US Department of Energy has a much bigger estimate. They think the figure is 560 billion cubic metres. So whichever way you look at it, these numbers are big. They're considerable. This would, without question, be a useful addition to the UK energy mix, but it's not going to be revolutionary. We're not going to have a situation here, which you have in America, where the whole energy mix has been changed and where self-sufficiency has been achieved. That's simply not going to be an option here. But at a time when North Sea gas production is clearly on a downward path, and where we are importing greater quantities of gas every year, finding a, a large domestic resource additional to what we have at the moment would clearly be useful. And just one final question. What's the most optimistic forecast as to when we might have shale gas production in the UK? The path ahead is as follows. On September the 21st, Quadrilla will announce how much shale they think lie within their licence area. If they like what they see, they will then place a plan to go to the production phase before the government. The Department of Energy and Climate Change would then have to approve that plan and then local authorities would have to grant planning permission for production rigs to be installed and then the work could commence. How long any of that might take is really anyone's guess, but we're clearly talking about years rather than months. But equally, we're talking about years rather than decades. This isn't a distant prospect. It's clearly going to be decided one way or the other within the next few years. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Vincent Boland and David Blair. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.